This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. The church has an opportunity here to say, this is at least what we want to be. We want to be the refuge amidst the storm, not a cause of more storms. Hi, I'm Carl Vaders, and I'm a small church pastor, and welcome to Can This Work in a Small Church? My guest is David Zoll. He's the author of Seculosity, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion, and What to Do About It. Yeah, it's a mouthful, but it's worth it. This is a really, really good book. In this episode, David and I have a wide-ranging conversation about how the religious landscape has changed in our culture, but not in the ways you may have thought. According to David, we haven't become less religious, and we haven't even shifted from being religious to being spiritual, but the objects of our worship and the rituals and rules around that worship have changed from vertical to horizontal. So, if you are a church leader, this episode will help you get a handle on some of the confusing shifts in attitude and behavior that may be frustrating you as you attempt to lead a congregation. And don't forget to stick around when the interview is done. I'll come back with an overview of the content and an answer to the question, can this work in a small church? Well, David, it is great to have you with us on the podcast today. I sure appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, Carl. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, a friend of mine who is a an avid Amazon book reviewer, I think he's like in the top 100 or something. He's a little nutso about it. Uh, he read your book and was so highly praiseworthy of it. And he's the kind of guy who's really honest in his reviews. So when he really goes nutso for a book, it's like he really means it. And the book, of course, being uh, Seculosity, how I, and then the, one of the longest subtitles ever, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance became our new religion and what to do about it. So I'm glad you added that last little segment. <laughs> Otherwise, it just kind of feels hopeless. Mm, um, yeah. As I understand the premise of it, and I've read it and I've got it tabbed like crazy, but I also want to be sure that I'm not you know, misunderstanding the premise because I've had people misunderstand the premise of my book before too. Sure. Uh, as I understand the premise of the book, while we've become less traditionally religious and less traditionally church going, we haven't become less interested or less religiously needy. Mm. The focus of our religious attention has gone elsewhere. Am I on the right track there? And if so, where has our attention gone? You're you're hundred percent on the right track. At least that's what the book says. And I, I think it's, it's been only borne out since uh, increasingly since the book came out, but yes, there's this idea that we have sort of become less religious, but I think we've become more religious about, about more things. And so it depends highly on what you mean by religious. So uh, the way that I describe it in the book is not only that which you you lean on for purpose or meaning or values or transcendence even, but what you lean on for enoughness, sort of the sense that I'm okay. There's a, there's a slight tension in the book between what you worship versus what you 
the feelings that you receive from the things you worship, meaning the feelings of justification or of just acknowledgement or love. So, yeah, I, I think that that's pretty clear is that, you know, you, if you drive to church on a Sunday morning, at least where I am, uh, you will usually pass not only brunch places that are jammed, but you will pass sort of fitness boutiques that are jammed. What's going on there? Well, when you go, you find a highly ritualized experience, whether that be soul cycle, whether that be like the cutting edge brunch place. And you find lots of talk about purity of sourcing and purity of exercise. And, and there's all sorts of promises being made to people. I think it's tangible. I think that there's reasons why we're attracted to these, what I call replacement religions. But the experience, in my view, of being a person in 2022 is not just to occasionally be in an actual church, but to sort of be in a sort of a proxy church constantly. Like you're, we're seldom not in church. And by that, I mean, we're seldom the, the bad kind of church that is just hammering us with demands and and all what I say, it maintains a lot of these seculosities or uh, kind of replacement religions maintain all of the demand and ritual of the old kind of religion, but none of the mercy or forgiveness or pardon or hope. Yeah. One of the things I love, and you've, you've mentioned it several times in in the last few minutes and, and the way you do it in the book, there's been a tendency in the last generation or so to move towards, well, we're not religious, but we're spiritual. And you, you just, I, I don't even know. I, I'm trying to remember if you even address that dichotomy in the book at all. I don't think you do. You just simply call it out for what it is. No, we are still religious. It's not just simply a fuzzy spirituality. The hallmarks of religion, the commitment to it, the ritualization of it, and so on, has not dissipated. It has not disappeared. It has simply shifted its focus. But yes. We, it, but, it, but it's about religion and not just about spirituality. Absolutely. I mean, there's. I find religion to be like a, just a, basically a more rigorous and specific form of spirituality. Yeah. It's the kind that makes demands on you. And the, the seculosity, which, and again, the way I use the word seculosity, which is a, it's a made up word, is yeah. as just anything. As, all, as are all words, by the way. So you just get, you just get to make up one of your own. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I tell that to my editor. The, um, yeah. the seculosity is simply all of the spiritual energy and commitment devotion that is directed at earthly rather than heavenly targets for the sake of enoughness or a kind of a kind of pardon. Yeah. That's what I mean when I say that. I And I, I do think that if you drill down into what it's like, the world of modern parenting, for example, is just chock full of, it's rigorous. It's impossible. It's rigorous to the point of impossible. But w- once you get to the point of impossibility, there's no sort of Jesus standing there. What What is impossible with man is possible with God. No, instead you just have just try harder, or here's another book to try, or, oh, your child hasn't turned out to be perfect. Well, that is all your fault. And it's kind of, I mean, it correlates to an atmosphere of despair that I think is out there when there's no release valve or no reconciliation mechanism for imperfect people. Hmm. In Christianity, we have a God to whom we can bring our failures and our weaknesses. We have the promise and the hope of redemption in in a careerist society where uh, what you, there's no distinction between who you are and sort of what you're able to accomplish at at the office. Well, there's no, there's no uh, recourse for the person who's been fired outside of just, I guess I don't matter. So it is strange as you're describing it. It feels like 
we've subconsciously decided let's pick the hard parts of religion and let's not bring in the best part of it, which, <laughs> which is the grace and mercy offered through Christ's, you know, sacrifice and resurrection that actually helps us to overcome these things. It's almost like we've gone uh, uh, really legalistic. We've replaced the target of that legalism from the church things to, although at the very in the last chapter, you talk about how we do that in the church as well, <laughs> but it is, it's like we picked the bad stuff and left the good stuff behind. It's really a weird, it's all, all subconscious. Nobody would do that on purpose. Right? Yeah. I don't, I don't think we do it on purpose. I think we do it for the sake of control. You know, if I'm told that I can be here, that here's the 10 steps I can take to, you know, master my own fate or to ensure my own immortality, I will, I will take that over the wild and unruly love of God, which is operates outside of my ability to control it. Thank God. But however, I think the human condition is such that we would rather have the illusion of control than the security of God's sovereignty. Yeah. Fascinating. For those who aren't aware of the book, just to walk folks through what it's about, that you've already defined seculosity for us. In fact, in the book, you define it in the book, which I love is it's religion that's directed horizontally rather than vertically at earthly rather than heavenly objects. Yes. So it's not, it's not a change of practice. It's simply a redirection of the object of that practice. Yes. To, to beside me rather than above me, uh, you know, metaphorically. Yeah. And the funny thing about the, you know, um, seculosity is such that we can have many, many directions that it's directed horizontally in every yeah. conceivable way. Not just, it's not just a either horizontal or vertical. It's like a gazillion horizontal options and then one vertical option. Or, yeah. but you can also say that as I try to get to it with Christians or just religious people, is it? You can subscribe or ascribe to the seculosity of romance, for example, while also being a church-going Christian and saying, I believe that God is ultimately my savior. And yet functionally, you also have sort of bought into kind of a soulmate myth about how maybe my wife is also my savior. The book divides out by chapters, and in each chapter you deal with a different target of worship, basically. You look at the seculosity of busyness, romance, parenting, technology, work, leisure, food, politics, and Jesus land. <laughs> and in our conversation, I'd like to narrow in on four that I think that, first of all, have been most, I'll use the word vexing to me, uh, <laughs> frustrating to me. And I think have I've heard the most frustration expressed to me uh, from the pastors that I work with. So what I want to do is let, let's talk through four of them, busyness, parenting, politics, and Jesus land. These are the ones that I keep hearing reflected back to me as people are trying to pastor their churches. These are the ones that are like, how do I answer these questions for people? So busyness is the first one is, is fascinating because as you say, right at the beginning of that chapter, busyness has become a virtue in and of itself. It's one of the few vices that we are congratulated for and that we in fact do a humble brag about, oh, I'm just so busy right now, mm-hmm. as though somehow that elevates my status and my importance in the, to the people we're talking about. And then you use a term that I don't know if you made, I don't know if this is two terms you made up, or if this is one that I just never heard of before. You introduce the term performancism, mm. this chapter, and then you come back to it a lot. So is this a second word that you made up? Or are you just going <laughs> to add to I, the dictionary? Or is I that one heard that. that. I'd heard that, you know, performancism is like a, is basically my euphemism for I, the whole book is really a work of translation and performancism is my euphemism for the new testament calls justification according to works of the law 
But that's yeah. that's kind of a big mouthful as well as it's a little incomprehensible to you know folks on the street so i think performancism is the idea that there's no difference between who i am and my performance at x y or z that might mean yeah. my job that might mean as a parent that might mean as just sort of a social media influencer or something like that but there's no distinction between i am synonymous with the likes or the followers i have on social media and that's a well very few people again would consciously assent to that unconsciously we almost all assent to it it's the same with, with pastors you know frankly there's no distinction between my value as a pastor and the number of people who are in the in this church i mean the, the numbers game that we play as uh, ministers is just insidious we, we know that it is and we know that oftentimes the health of a church has very little to do with the number actual of people who are there but it's true so performanceism sort of sets up a treadmill mentality where right. I cannot get off the treadmill for fear that someone else will overtake me. And and so you get this busier than thou atmosphere where it doesn't really matter what you're doing as long as you're busy. Yeah. So this busyness is one of the first ways that performanceism often rears its head in our lives. We just got to keep going. But isn't the opposite of busyness laziness? Some people might respond. I mean, aren't we supposed to keep active and keep busy? And isn't there this call that Christ has put in our lives and shouldn't we be continually active? Where, where does staying active become busyness and why is busyness such a problem for us? Well, I think busyness is more in the sense of like sheep without a shepherd. I mean, like going to and fro and, and no one knows why. There's a long distance between busyness and, and laziness. And laziness is, I think, culturally speaking, laziness is not my fear right now. I think the level of anxiety and the level of depression and things like that and just spiritual despair is usually much more correlated with this over-demanding, never-resting. If you project onto God that God is basically just like Mark Zuckerberg or is just like your boss and demands from you incessant activity, well, that doesn't sound like my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That sounds a right. lot like late stage capitalism, basically. So it's it's a and and plus if you look at the rhythms of Christ's life, I mean he was he he withdrew, you know, yeah. he wasn't he wasn't always on. I mean when he was he never turned away from those in need, but he wasn't trying to maximize uh, his output. It was sort of a much more personal and intentional and full of withdrawal and time with God and and inactivity and. So I don't, and prayer, I don't, uh, yeah. the busyness that we deal with is usually we're in flight from some kind of verdict about ourselves, some sort of negative feeling, or that if we stop too too long, we would start to uh, maybe uh, feel the consequences of our own sin. Maybe we would just be the, the, the accusations of our conscience. I don't know what it is, but I know that the mm -hmm. manic pace of modern life seems to be at odds with the spiritual health. And, uh, and yeah. churches that are just doing activities for the sake of doing activities, we see this happen because we are justified by the number of programs we have. I mean, that just is, what's the great cultural malady right now is burnout. Everyone is sort of, you get, you can do it for a while until you're a pastor. And then all of a sudden you see all these pastors saying, okay, I can't do this anymore. This is too much. So yeah. that's certainly not what we're called to as Christians. Yeah, you you mentioned in the book, church used to be used to offer a break from the busyness, and you you say even to the point of quote being boring and full of silence. 
<laughs> that, right. And, and now it's this constant beehive of activity. I mean, I like a church that's got a buzz and it's got some vibrancy to it and so on. Uh, because I, the, the opposite of that feels like it's either boring or it's really active, but it's not a binary choice here where it's either hyper hyperactive or completely boring. There is a place for silence and for rest and for contemplation and for pondering. I mean, you mentioned, you know, Jesus time away, plus you've got a Sabbath built into the Ten Commandments. You've got the seventh day of rest that God himself took, and he didn't exactly need to re-energize. He wasn't tired, <laughs> <laughs> right? But he did it, obviously, as an example for us to follow. So what are some thoughts that you might have for, for the pastors who are listening in, who are, who are thinking, they are being driven to keep their church a constant beehive of busyness, which in fact is contributing to this overstimulation. And how do we back off from that and offer them an alternative to that? Well, I think pastors, first of all, it involves them taking a day off. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I think I think that the rise and more popularity of all sorts of churches asking their pastors to take sabbaticals, paid sabbaticals, I think is a very, very healthy thing. I mean, funding them too, to do yeah. it. All boats rise. Uh, I've watched it too many times to notice. I think there's, you know, you do get today a little bit more appreciation of the notion of Sabbath. I think that's a good place to start for folks who are struggling with it. But I, I think ultimately it's a confidence thing. I, I want to say to the pastors who are there that it's okay to provide an alternative to the busyness. And it is not saying we're just going to do one thing all week. It means consciously saying, are we doing too much? Are we just trying to compete? Have we become another source of stress for people? Or we've become the place where they go when they, they need a comforting word, when they need their community, when they need to be with God? Are we the refuge or are we? And I really think the church has an opportunity here to say, this is at least what we want to be. We want to be the refuge amidst the storm, not a cause of more storms. Yeah. I mean, Sabbath has two parts to it. It has rest and worship. If you've got rest without worship, it's just a day off. Mm -hmm. um, and that's fine. Days off are good, uh, but it's not <laughs> Sabbath. But right. if it's worship and no rest, then it's not Sabbath either because rest is built into it. It needs to be a wonderful balance of both. And I think you're right. I think for most of us as pastors, we're not doing that ourselves. Uh, breaking the Sabbath may be the only thing that we are, that pastors regularly do that we're congratulated for and that we, <laughs> we really need to make an adjustment on because we can't keep burning ourselves out like this. It's, it's killing us. No, the burnout, the burnout is very real. And now a short break to talk about something else. If you like the content you're hearing, here are two things you can do for us. First, forward this podcast to a friend. Second, consider becoming a financial supporter through Patreon, Venmo, or PayPal. Just go to carlvaders.com support. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most. Our support link is in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party, 
It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Yeah, let's move from busyness to this next one, parenting. And I, I was so thrilled when I started reading your chapter on parenting, which actually starts with a little bit about marriage where you talk about the soulmate myth. And I was thrilled. I nearly stood up and cheered because this is something that uh, that I seldom see addressed, this whole idea of I found my soulmate and that this is not only not a Christian concept, it is in fact a very pagan concept. You know, when people talk about this and I go, I don't know, I could have been happy with, you know, hundreds of other women. Probably there's a whole bunch of women in the world who we probably could have made it work as married to. I'm glad I married the one I married, but she mm. wasn't the only one out of the 7 billion people and three and a half billion women on the planet that I could have been happy with. There are this idea that there's only one person out there. I think it puts a pressure on people, first of all. And secondly, it's not a biblical concept, this idea of the soulmate myth. So you talk about the soulmate myth, and I probably just made a whole bunch of people mad and I won't have made my wife mad by what I just said. She's heard it before. Relax. (laughs) (laughs) But this idea that there's only one person for me and the pressure that's there. And then when we do, there's this expectation of of fulfillment from the other person. Why is this idea of the soulmate so dangerous to us? Well, Again, it puts pressure on the other person to basically be God. When, when you when you drill down to what we're expecting from a quote unquote soulmate, it's it's we're expecting them to anticipate our every need to have all sorts of you know capabilities that we don't have. It's usually about what we can take from them or receive from them, rather than a Christian understanding of marriage is much more about what we can give. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's beautiful, not worth walking away from. But I I see there's a lot of paralysis and a lot of resentment around unconscious expectations we have brought into our marriage that we weren't aware of. You know, it's, I don't know if it's, I don't want to sort of point too many fingers. I think it's a storybook sort of Disneyfied view of one day my prince will come or, or Mm. this, this, this lady who's going to completely rock my world and going to be my one and only. I mean, there's a, there is a deification of the romance in this regard. And I think it can sound like I'm talking about being anti-love or anti-romance, and that's not the case. No. I think romance is wonderful, and it's a gift from God, and what a wonderful thing that we get to experience that in any respect. But the way that we have pressurized or moralized even, there's there's one person for me, it tends to create the sort of expectations that, that prevents another person from even being anyone for you. Right. Right. And it's again, it's all self-focused and it's it has a narrative quality to it that's just out of sync with what the purpose of life is. So, yeah, Now I think it also has to be balanced out. And just for those who are listening and wondering what's wrong with me before you're married, there's not just one person for you after you're married. There is. <laughs> and and you that, said that, <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so mm. so then you move from the soulmate myth and the parents establishing the parenting thing and then we talk about you talk about parental over involvement and i know for people of my generation it's kind of become this cliche of back in my day you just hung around until the street lights came on my parents never came to my baseball game and i turned out fine and now they're obsessed over everything. And so I'm always slow to, to jump onto that bandwagon. But 
there is, you do talk about the dangers of parental over-involvement. Where did this come from and why is parental over-involvement dangerous? Well, there's a lot of reasons why it's dangerous and there's a lot of reasons why parental under-involvement is dangerous. It's as, as you say, it's not like the, the parenting stuff is always on a pendulum. I feel fine. It's always a reaction, a counter-reaction thing. What, what we're dealing with now is the pressure on modern parents sets them up to resent their children for completely taking over their lives and, and taking over their marriage for, you know, in mm. other ways. But you also start to see you a you you imbibe a view of our own power as it relates to our children. Like if they're amazing, it's completely because we're because we did a great job. And if they're terrible, it's completely to be our fault. And we a Christian believes ultimately is a child of God, yeah. and that you are a steward of this child and you do your best, but you're not completely. Uh, there, there's all sorts of other factors in the world. The other thing is, though, we start to lean on our when we over-identify with our children, and this is the drives, I think, a lot of our the seculosity of parenting is when we over-identify with our children, we see them as a complete and utter reflection of us um, or echo of us, rather than a person that is, you know, God has made. We see them only as an extension of ourselves, and so they become sort of like uh, uh, a chance at redemption for us. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you watch that with like parents on the sideline who had frustrated athletic careers, just pummeling their children with expectations or your children become another sort of way for you to control and dictate the entire world. Either case to love another child is to, or love a child that you've been given is to sort of, is to not kind of inflict them with pure performance cystic pressure, but to, again, be the person they run to when life gets hard. I mean, is it, it's a, it's complicated, but I I do think the pressure on modern parents to sort of, they're, they're basically told that they're terrible all the time. And it's like, again, it's like a church without any grace. So it's one false move and your child is going to be living under a bridge. That is like why parents are so involved or they feel like everyone else is doing it and they can't opt out or their children will suffer. So it's this, it's a hyper view, a high view of human agency. It's a low view of a child's actual personhood and like their own belovedness or dignity. And it just drives people insane. Yeah. And it's become so common. It's actually become like an overused trope in sitcoms where the parents are so concerned about getting their child into the perfect preschool, because if they won't get into the perfect preschool, then they won't get into the perfect grammar school, then they won't get into the perfect high school, then they're not going to go to Harvard, then they're going to end up living under a bridge somewhere. Right. And it's, it's this joke that happens in like multiple sitcoms. I've seen it, but it doesn't come that often in you know fiction unless it's got some basis in reality <laughs> but that's really what's happening so yeah let's move from parenting now though to politics up until now we've probably been getting uh, some head nods and maybe a few amens from listeners and just so you know that's all going to change right now when we get to politics <laughs> I hate talking uh, about this. Yes, keep going. Yeah, here we go. So the way you put it in the book is this. With the possible exception of career, politics has become the most popular replacement religion. Let me first respond by saying, how dare you? There <laughs> <laughs> is the most popular replacement religion. I agree with you. Let's talk about that. Why has politics become the go-to for so many people? There's a lot of reasons behind it. I think one reason is politics offers a 
completely what I would call a totalizing narrative so that everything, the, the way that the, the American, at least political system is set up is that your point of view can explain absolutely everything about the universe. If you're a conservative, you're progressive, yeah. like uh, there's nothing that falls outside of its, its sway. So anytime you're dealing with totalizing narratives that claim to have the access to the entire truth about everything, you're going to get people invested spiritually, whether you want them to or not. That's just the case. I think that politics is more and more seen as a secular form of redemption, of saving the world. It is the approved means by which we can achieve salvation. And that might not be an eternal salvation, but you know, the, the, the salvation of our country, the salvation of our community, et cetera, et cetera. And again, it's no longer governance we're talking about here. We are talking about actual salvation. That's when, and that happens, you also have good versus evil that come into play very quickly. And you have candidates put as messiahs on all sides. Like it's just, Mm -hmm. it's, no, no candidate, by the way, can live up to that. And we watch it over and over again. But yeah. it's so tempting to... And politics also becomes very religious in the sense that it gives people a sense of belonging in a way that churches, churches that have a common purpose, have a sense of belonging. But of course, in a political realm, you also have an enemy. And that gives you even more belonging because if you can bond over a common enemy and a common set of values then the person who holds those values the most strongly and vocally becomes the most beloved. And so there's it's an internal police force in which everyone feels like I have to shout louder and louder and louder. And it, it creates a very oppressive situation in which a lot of these people I know don't feel like they can really say what they really think about any number of things because they don't want to lose their belonging. They don't want to be, yeah. they don't want to be condemned in some way. But even if if I'm if I'm a person that says simply that I think politics are important, but I also don't think that they're all important, to a lot of people they would say, "How dare you?" Again, "How dare you underplay?" That's something that's mm-hmm. oh, that's easy for yeah. you to say, Dave, as a privileged person on the East Coast. But what about so and so? It has this self-reinforcing importance, an absolute importance in all on all sides of the equation that is deeply religious. It's the same, a lot of the same dynamics of heresy hunting uh, go on within political realms. But again, you have no mercy at the center. There's no allowance for people being very hypocritical on no matter what values they hold. There's no allowance for for humanity, but there's also no allowance for sin and self-sabotage. It's all becomes about defeating other people. Yeah. It, the, the extremism is is the thing that's really changed, I think, in the last uh, few years. You, you mentioned, you know, politics has gone from being not just one lens through which we understand the world, but the only one for a whole lot of people. And then, as you mentioned already, you've got, it's not enough to hold the same beliefs as me, but you've got to hold them as strongly as I believe them. And it's not enough for you to be against the policies on the other side. You have to be as angry about them as I am. And I've actually experienced that with with friends, both as a pastor, as well as just simply in my regular friendships, where I've there's been a bit of a rift between me and some of my friends over in recent years. And we are still on the same side politically. We can sit down. And if you were just technically to list what we believe in and what we don't believe in, we may check every one of the same boxes, but I'm not as angry as they are against the other side. 
and I don't yell as loudly as they do for my side. So my lack of extreme emotion is then interpreted by them as somehow you must be actually on the other side. Mm-hmm. I get this pushback. I, I mean, I'm like, I literally agree with you on every single one of these steps. I just, yeah. I'm just not that angry. And I don't make it my entire being for every single conversation. But if you don't, for a lot of people right now, that's not enough. It's gotten that extreme. Where, where has that come from? And what is that doing to us? Well, I think a lot of it, honestly, I, I hate to say it. I I think that the need to feel justified and to feel like you're enough, according to some external barometers of righteousness, is an age-old human situation that the Bible address, addresses more or less directly. People usually can admit this if they're being honest. I think that the way technology has annexed all of our lives just does this thing where it and it's made to do it. It's not like a byproduct. It's made to do it where I get exposed to only those things that make me angry because Mm -hmm. I'm more likely to click on that. That's the economic model. I only get exposed to the worst possible examples of the quote unquote other side or stuff that already supports my conclusion. So if you're only ever being exposed to bad worst actors on the other side, never and vice versa. And it's sort of a, a, a bubble that is sort of being created around you. I mean, Christians believe that this sort of the essence of sin is not only rebellion from God, but a sort of a curving in on oneself. That's what we create. We create these little filter bubbles so that we're constantly being confronted with stuff that makes us extremely angry. And then that excites our self-righteousness, which is, you know, the number one thing, it seems to me, that Jesus and Paul at least were very much on guard against. But we just, we confuse that for actual righteousness when we're really being manipulated. So I think that there's a lot of that and people don't want to see themselves as being manipulated because we all believe we've got such free will and we're so strong and good actors. But that's really, from what where I'm sitting, that's what's happening. Yeah. And it's it has erased the middle. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. or you might say there is an exhausted middle. Like there is like, there, there's people on each side and then there's the people it's, in the middle. It silenced the middle at bare it's, minimum. It's science silenced the middle. So I think that that's happened. And I think that that's really, really unfortunate. And I also believe that more and more people are coming to grips with, like you said about your actual friends, the fallout in real time of this sort of manipulation. And so if you're actually able to get off social media and, you know, but of course, then all of a sudden we don't even trust certain media outlets anymore. We can't agree on what are facts. That's undermined a whole lot of trust again. However, if I sit down with you and we talk, it tends to be much easier to deal with someone who I've otherwise vilified. But we create these us versus them dichotomies that are the, the best way to feel righteous is to feel like other people aren't righteous. It's a very human and again, sinful tendency. You know, even if we believe if we can check the box and say all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But I could say, well, I still uh, those people are still either insane or evil. A lot of the binary of politics creates that, of course, because, you know, it, it's a vote for or a vote against, and there's you can't split your ticket. Well, you mean you can split your upper ticket, lower ticket. You can vote for president of one and senator of another, but basically it's it's binary. It's you're in or you're out, whereas most of life is not binary. When we're actually having conversations with other people, you may find people who, you there's a Venn diagram. There's some over, overlap, and there's some places where it doesn't overlap, but once you get to the ballot box, you've got to pick yes or no. Yeah. There's no, there's no subtlety of that shading. So this idea of the binary of yes or no, 
when we live our lives in the political realm, that binary then comes over into all of our relationships. You're either for me or against me. There's no middle ground where we agree on some things and don't agree on other things. And we can, we can, you know, have civil conversations. And I love what you said earlier about what we see is we compare the best of my side to the worst of your side. Yes. Rather than let's be honest about it and compare the best of my side to the best of the other side. Because if my side really is better then the best of mine will be better than the best of yours. <laughs> yeah. And it's a much more honest way of making those comparisons. But I find myself even, you know, kind of being called down for even attempting to do that. Why are you, why are you reading such and such from that other side? I, why are you even bothering with it? Well, because being an informed individual yeah. means that I actually want to read intelligent ideas from the other side. And there's some things they say that I actually agree with the mm. underlying premise of it. I don't, but that doesn't yeah. mean everything they say is stupid or evil. And there, there are conversations that we can have and move forward in a civil society, but that is really disappearing very quickly. I cite something in the book, it might only be in the paperback, but I cite a some study out of the University of Pennsylvania. And I say that and people might already roll their eyes, but like <laughs> saying that in the past, basically 30 years, it used to be that your faith would inform your politics. And today it's much more common to people to choose a church based on its politics. So the politics yep. leads the faith rather than the faith leading the politics. Even the notion of saying, what are your politics? Like that's not, that's a very modern idea. It, it's very, sounds very similar to what is your theology. Mm-hmm. And it is, uh, that's a sh- fundamental shift for Christians who, I mean, I believe the real dichotomy in the Bible is righteous God and sinful humanity, not varying shades of, you know, yeah. the, the, of humanity. So the, the, the political narratives are so tempting. And so, and sometimes people hear this and they say, oh, are you undercutting any kind of right and wrong? And by no means, like we can, no. but, but, but we're so far away from that. Like we can have right and wrong. I can disagree with what you say without thinking that you're evil or insane, you know, or like a comic book villain. Like, I, I think that's basically where we've come to. And that's, that is not, that's a re- very religious in the worst possible way. Like, yeah. um, we're, we're bordering on sort of crusade type mentality. And that's not, I think, do we, I mean, as religious people, you want to say, do we really want to go down that road? I mean, haven't we seen where that leads? It's not good. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't do well yeah. for people who say they believe in, the forgiveness and blood of Jesus. I mean, it's not, I don't think it, I don't think it's a good. And yet sadly, there's a growing group of people who would say, yeah, that's exactly the road we want to go down. Like consciously are saying that I'm hearing that it's, it's that dangerous, but well, we could stay on this one forever and then just really depress ourselves, but let's move (laughs) on to another depressing at one Jesus land. Now, is this a third keyword that you've made up? Cause you made up seculosity. You, you, you may have borrowed performanceism from somewhere. Is Jesus land another word you made made up and created, or is it something you picked up from somewhere else that I had? I picked it up from a song that a guy named Ben Folds wrote. Was he was sort of lampooning a pop American Christianity that a billboard type Christianity that I think is is tacky or or some some in in his in his view he saw it as antithetical to actually Jesus. So it was like a gotcha. Disneyland type of version. So it's a Ben Folds five song that I just wasn't aware of. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. All righty. The way you define Jesus land in the book is it's a bastardized form of Protestant Christianity that dominates much of the spiritual landscape. And you say it often resembles the secular replacements 
more than the real thing. It's fascinating to me because it feels to me like what you're talking about here is 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, and he's saying, you've got these divisions in the body of Christ. You've got some saying, I, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I, I follow Cephas or Peter. And then he adds a group that says, I follow Christ as yet another sectarian divisive choice rather mm. than, so it, it's almost like he's saying Jesus land here. Like it's when you're using the terminology of Christianity as yet another way to bring about divisiveness, mm. that feels to me like what you're talking about in this chapter here. Am I, am I somewhat close on that? Yeah, uh, very much so. I mean, if performanceism is at the heart of a lot of seculosity, then how many Christians have you talked to? I mean, I've certainly, I've talked to over the years who feel like there are, um, they became a Christian because they be heard the promises of, of God and the forgiveness and heard about the resurrection of the dead. And they got so excited about the being the, the rebirth in Christ. And then they're all of a sudden Christian for a few years. And they're like, wait a second, why does it feel like I'm on a new ladder and a new treadmill? Mm. And, and now I'm performing again. And Sunday, uh, you know, the, I had to put on my Sunday face and I got a shiny, happy church guy. And if I don't, then I'm sort of second-class citizen. And that that form of Christianity, which is, I guess, a legalistic caricature perhaps, but it's very real in the world, that is what we see. That's how Jesus land Christianity ends up aping its secular equivalence. It becomes another ladder to climb, another performance game, another means of asserting your own enoughness rather than church being the place you go to hear about what's been given to you from God himself. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a sort of an age old thing. I think the American landscape has, it gets all mixed up with commerce and celebrity, which can be very um, strange. In fact, tragic bedfellows with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you do see it. And there's a real dissonance that people, you, you hear people be like, oh, I just couldn't keep it up anymore. Like I just couldn't. Yeah. Uh, and that's usually because They've embraced a form of Christianity. They may not have even known it, but it was, it was more had more in common with performancist seculosity than it did with the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the dead and resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and before people start thinking, well, we're just okay. We're just going to start beating up on American evangelicals again because we're the easy punching bag. I, you have a refreshingly balanced approach to modern day and to American evangelicalism. You you talk about some of the stereotypes that are out there, and then you say actual evangelicals rarely fit that mold. And I think at one point you even said. Uh, the average uh, Southern Baptist is not more any more judgmental than the average you know, person in the culture. You go right straight to that. That's the stereotypical punching bag, right? That's so, so you address that and you go, in fact, these caricatures are in fact caricatures. They are overdrawn. There's a real healthy, balanced approach to that. But then you do say when it does come to performanceism, the Jesus land thing is just as bad as the others. But yeah, right? the, the, the liberal church has a sort of a performanceism about um, social justice, you know, that is right. very pernicious and self-righteous and just burns people out. There's just not as many of those people, though a lot yeah. of them are re refugees from a sort of a, a more evangelical form of Jesus land. And then they think, oh, well, this will be better because it's more collective law instead of personalized ones. And they, they find out they just end up judging the heck out of everyone again. And so, yes. and yes, in my opinion, most died in the wool Christian conservatives, you know, Southern Baptists, most of them are 
kind-hearted people trying to, you know, love God in the best way they can. And it's not, there's nothing uh, nefarious at all. Yeah. I think that there's, there's a strand of, uh, that gets into the American church where we lose sight of God's grace for Christians then you end up pushing people. You start to say, well, it was good for you when you were not a Christian, but now, now let's get serious and let's start time to conform and stop, start changing. And you just start yelling at people and and you have pastors who just get more and more upset at their congregation for not giving more or doing more or praying more. Yeah. I've seen that, but legalism, Phariseeism, whatever you want to call it, it appears to be more of a more a tied to the per, to a person's personality type than to their theological beliefs because if you're a fundamentalist on the right and you deconstruct and go to the left you almost always end up as a fundamentalist on the left almost and vice always. versa yeah you you carry your personality type with you and now so all of the problems that you had but now it was now it's towards one set of beliefs now you do exactly the same thing for, towards a different set of beliefs i yeah i couldn't agree with you more and that's unfortunate and it's ironic, but it's sad and it's it doesn't excuse it on either side, by the way, but I think it does um I'd be lying if I didn't see people who are shouting bloody murder on one end, then they have some some enlightenment mo- moment and now they're shouting bloody murder about yeah. what they were came out of yeah. it dispositionally oh, yeah. dispositionally spiritually, you might even say the the same kind of immaturity you might kind of still reigns. It's, yeah. it's very, it's very sad. And I don't think, I think God is, you know, forgiving. I, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like you can write yourself out of his plan in, in a way that people think, or mean, meaning like the hope is not, I don't really necessarily posit the hope in the, as, as being in the church, but in what the church proclaims and the God that we worship, who is yeah. the God who welcomes sinners, who, who is in the business of redeeming those who cannot redeem themselves and ultimately is is um the, the word of of god's grace is is the final word not the condemnation of the law yeah 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 i again so much that we could go into but in the last few minutes let's let's take it down to the practical for the the pastors who are typically the audience listening here mm-hmm. uh, what can we as pastors do to help our own co- congregations understand and overcome some of what we were talking about but i think even before that you mentioned it earlier what is it that pastors need to do ourselves for those pastors who are trapped in this? What part of this do we tend to be susceptible to ourselves? So how do we address the issue within our own selves first as pastors so that we can then turn around and help our congregations? Sure. Well, the performancism inherent in the uh, inherent in the pastorate is just, it creates enormous amounts of despair. And I think it's just not based in anything biblical, but it's deeply human and it's it's reinforced by the culture at every conceivable, you know, turn. How many programs do you have? How many people are coming? How many baptisms? How many, you know, how many giving units? All these things. That is the law and it will burn you out. And, you know, whatever practices a person needs to do that are effective with them in order to remain grounded in the gospel itself that applies to you as a pastor that you are not uh, defined by your annual report or your mm-hmm. newsletter numbers. You're defined by what God has done for you. And that's, we remain grounded in the, in that message, that the same message that justifies is the one that I think that we, that sanctifies. So we try to 
how can we keep the main thing the main thing? I don't know. It's different for every person. For some people, it is going on a sabbatical. Some people, it is retreats. Some people, it is just being able to pray with your wife and have a daily quiet time. I don't know what it is for you, but that has got to be first and foremost. I think in terms of ministry, we have to, we must acknowledge that everyone is suffering under this burden, this enormous burden of seculosity that we are. For, so, so chief of sinners right here, when people come to church, it's okay to highlight the fact that this is not another venue for them to establish their enoughness. That this is where you go when you fall off the treadmill, and that's okay. And how can we, quote unquote, brand in a way that really, that's what's different. That's what we have to offer that the world doesn't have to offer. We have forgiveness, the forgiveness of God. And, uh, you know, bring here, come bring your, your, your failures, bring your shame and trusting in the fact, because I think a lot of pastors think, well, I have to go and preach against these things. Or I think it's okay to, to tear down idols, you know, idol smashing sermons are very popular and I think they're very effective, but I think ultimately we, we can also rest in the knowledge that people are generally pretty beaten down by the seculosity of the world and that we don't have to amplify those voices where the voice we're there to amplify is the voice of the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the both challenges and joys of being a pastor in a smaller congregation is in a bigger church, you're going to address it almost entirely in your sermons and then in the programs that follow out of that. Whereas in a small church, you're actually hanging around with people who really know you. You're having conversations. You're you're at a potluck together. You're visiting them in the hospital. They're coming to your home for a Bible study. There's actual hours spent with people who actually know you and you know them. And so it's as much about living it out in front of them and among them as it is about preaching it. So in a smaller church, it's it's not more important to be genuine about it. It's important to be genuine about it in any church of any size, but it's going to be more obvious, I think, and evident in people's lives if you're not living it out, if you're pastoring a smaller church, because mm. they're in your life, they're in your face, they're in your house. <laughs> yes. Well, but that's why small churches are so beautiful too. I mean, that's what we... That's the opportunity. You know, you have these like, uh, you know, you talk to a big church and be like, well, I need to have my staff. I'll read this book so that it kind of goes from the top down. I mean, you're when you're actually uh, the person who's doing the marrying and the burying and the welcoming and the, the and the teaching. I think that you can uh, you have an op- what an opportunity to just be to let it all hang out and to say, hey, this is it's like this for me, too. This yeah, is how pastors yeah. str- struggle with this. If you're you know, welcome to the human race, we can talk about these things. And how can we see the church as a, as a respite from, you know, I want, I need that as much as you do. Let's get together. Let's, let's look at the scriptures. Let's look at the Bible. Hey, let's look at this amazing book, Seculosity. <laughs> but, but we can, I yep. think that a pastor in a smaller church has a better, it's actually a much better place to, to do this sort of effective ministry because, you know, you don't have the cult of personality that you sometimes, uh, that seems inevitable in a larger church. Well, hopefully not anyway. <laughs> uh, let's, get to, let's get to the lightning round, shall we? All right. Yes. We've got our four lightning round questions we're going to throw at you. Number one, what are the biggest changes you've seen in your field of ministry in the last few years and how have you adapted to it? I have two answers to this question. The first okay. is that I work primarily in my actual ministry uh, here at the church. I work with college students. And what I've seen is a larger and larger divide between girls and boys, between men and women. Mm-hmm. And I, I find like the achievement gap is enormous. And so uh, my need and hope to reach out to young men 
who feel ostracized is has become more and more acute for me. Wow. The other thing I'd say is that I started out when my with the ministry I do with Mockingbird, which is my nonprofit I run. In t- the last ten years, we've watched a major shift between blogging to podcasting, and I yeah. think that in fact the pandemic was a great opportunity for people in ministry to sort of embrace the opportunity afforded them by podcasting and. You have all these amazing communicators talking to people's ears, I think is generally a good thing. It's no substitute for the real thing, but podcasting content like what we're doing right now, Carl, I think is, is a worthwhile, it's not a add on necessarily. It can be a key part of what you're doing. Yeah, that's huge. Uh, Secondly, what free resource like an app or a website would you, has helped you lately that you'd recommend for small church ministry? Well, I, I, the one I run, I've just got to go with that, but it's Mockingbird, mbrd.com. And we have a, we have a free app called the Mocking app, which has, it's a daily, there's a daily devotional to it. There's lots of podcasts and there's uh, mainly just like constant stream, a barrage of stuff about seculosity, about all sorts of elements of connecting the culture with everyday life. So I find that to be, I'm going to be selfishly or or self-interested here and say that that's my favorite because it's free. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely. And we will put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, what's the best piece of ministry advice you've ever received? Do as little as possible. And that was what I watched a uh, someone do at the, at the institution of a, a dear friend of mine as a part of a big church. What was meant by that was wait and see what God is doing. Try to uh, hit your, your, rather than come in with a bunch of agendas, there, there will be things to do, plenty of things to do. But if you come in with a bunch of extra ideas about what needs to be done immediately, I've found that in my case, it's almost always stop and see <laughs> and pray and see what's it. So it sounds like a, a kind of a totally discouraging point of view, but I've found it to be enormously life-giving. Yeah, I agree that the move towards minimalism, I think is really healthy. And then the last one, what's the funniest or weirdest thing you've ever seen in church? Well, I was in New York City for many years and I had a dear friend who was near Union Square and we would regularly have homeless people just come in, interrupt the service. And I had one guy, I watched one guy one time, a homeless man who was it wasn't just substances. He was clearly psychotic and he came in and started threatening all of us. And my friends had to stop the sermon and he came down and he sat with the guy. We all kind of just stopped the service. There were 150 people there and we stopped the service and we, you know, the police were called, but we, um, he, he didn't, there was something about it that he was unflustered and was able to make us all feel safe, but that we were actually, we were not just going to turn off our Christianity once we got a little threatened. And right. uh, they got this guy some stuff he needed and a, a drink of coffee and uh, got him some new shoes or something like that from the soup kitchen and just, and then we're able to find him some resources, but it happened in the middle of the service. Yeah, And I think instead of like following the script, I watched my friend basically become a Christ-like presence in that yeah. moment. And, and, and anyone who was there is still going to that church because they were just so impacted by it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. It reminds me of, you know, the disciples had all kinds of important stuff to talk about and the kids ran in and Jesus said, yeah, this is, we're going to do the stuff with the kids here now. This is real <laughs> life interrupting us. Let's do the real life thing. I yeah. Think that, that feels like that to me. Yeah. Uh, again, thank you. Your book, Seculosity, How Career Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance became our new religion and what to do about it. I highly recommend that 
for anybody who'd like to follow up on anything else with you. How can people find you online if they would like to get in touch with you in any way? Sure. I'm on the Mockingbird website, which is mbird.com. I have a podcast called The Mockingcast. And I actually have a new, brand new book out called uh, Low Anthropology, The Unlikely Key to a Gracious View of Others and Yourself. And so I'm doing uh, some, uh, it's really nice to actually not be talking about that today, <laughs> but it's, it's, uh, that's out there too. So I, right. I'm, I'm all over the internet. All right. Terrific. Hey, thank you so much for this. Thank you for uh, the wisdom in the book. I encourage people to get it and for your time today. Uh, you have, you have helped a lot of us, I'm sure. And hopefully be, uh, help us, help us understand how to recalibrate some of what's happening in our world around us and how to, how to help our congregations get to a more healthy and balanced approach to life and keeping the, the object of our worship where, uh, where our worship ought to go. Thank you so much for that. Thank you, Carl. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So which of the subjects we talked about are you dealing with in your congregation? One of them, a few of them, maybe all of them. The manner in which David approaches these realities is so helpful for me. His book and this conversation have helped me make sense of what is often confusing and conflicting signals that I get in my personal relationships and in my attempt to be a church leader. So can this work in a small church? Well, of course. As we mentioned near the end of the conversation, in a small church, addressing these issues may be harder than it is for our big church friends because we are actually living these issues out in real-life relationships with the members of our congregation, but that's also what makes this such a great opportunity for us. I really encourage you to ask yourself if you yourself have been seduced by one or more of these competing worldviews. It's possible. In fact, it's probable. In fact, I know it's happened because I've talked to a lot of pastors and I've had it happen myself. It's very easy to get sucked in by these worldviews. So let's address it in ourselves first, and then let's live out a more Christ-like alternative in our homes, in our churches, in our marriages, and in our lives. Who we are will speak louder than any sermon we preach. If you'd like to support this ministry with a one-time gift or monthly donation and help put these resources into the hands of ministries that need them the most, check out our support link in the show notes. Would you like a transcript of this episode? It will be available within a few days of the podcast air date at christianitytoday.com slash carlvaders. You can find the link in the show notes. This episode was produced by Veronica Beaver, edited by Phil Vaders, Original theme music was written and performed by Jack Wilkins of jackwilkinsmusic.com. And me, I'm Carl Vaders, and I'm a small church pastor. <laughs>